Hi, Naclistos. Before we start today's episode, I wanted to let you all know about an event NACLA has coming up in New York. On Monday, February 26th at 7 p.m., we're holding an issue launch and a panel at Verso Books in Brooklyn. We're going to have some great guests on the panel, and they'll be discussing activism for environmental justice, sustainable energy, and a livable future across borders. The event is free and open to the public, and we're very excited about it. So if you're in the New York area, you should definitely join us. Again, that's Monday the 26th, not next Monday, but the week after, at 7 p.m. at Verso Books in Brooklyn. Welcome to NACLA Radio. I'm your host, Helen Hazelwood Isaac, and I'm joined today by Brett Gustafson, professor of anthropology at Washington University. Uh, we've had Brett on the show before, um, and today he's here to talk about his article for NACLA's latest issue, um, which is on fossil fuel dependency in Latin America. Um, his article is about the Caribbean and the ways in which, you know, U.S. Um, militaristic interventions in various Caribbean, Caribbean and circum-Caribbean nations um, have been framed as issues of national security, but in practice have tended to be more about defending um, fossil fuel capital um, on the part of businesses in the states. Um, and so this is a history that really draws us into the present, but has been um, you know, uh, going on for quite a long time. Um, so Brett opens his article with this fantastic story about the invasion of Grenada in 1983. Um, but really, this is a history that uh, is super relevant today, um, especially when we're thinking about um, hurricane uh, hurricanes and the and the effects that they've had on uh, energy structures in the region. So we're going to talk about that article, um, and we're going to kind of draw out that that history um, for Naklistas who have read the article, and also for those of you who haven't had a chance to read it. Uh, Brett, how are you? Hi, Helen. Uh, just fine. Thanks. Thanks for thanks having so me. Thanks so much for yeah. Thanks so much for being here. Um, so just to get started, um, maybe we can kind of start with the present um, and we can talk a little bit about this dynamic that you draw out uh, really near the end of the article um, with regard to uh, liquefied natural gas or LNG, which is this product of, of fracking um, that the Obama administration really sought to uh, promote um, in the Caribbean. Um, so, you know, what are the, what are kind of the contours of that dynamic and, and uh, where does it sort of stand, I guess now would be, would be my question. Right. So, um, so the basic problem for the Caribbean is that most of its energy is produced currently by uh, heavy fuel oil. And so that's a problem because oil is very polluting. Um, but also because, uh, in the recent, uh, recent years, it's been very expensive. Uh, the price has come down in the past couple of years, but, uh, by and large over the past, uh, couple of decades, uh, Caribbean nations, uh, which are high energy consumers, partly because of the high tourist in industry, have had to pay high prices for uh, energy production through purchasing oil, mostly from U.S. sources. Um, fast forward to the past few years with the fracking boom in the United States. Uh, fracking, of course, is a method for forcing gas, natural gas or oil uh, from the earth using explosives and then injected chemicals. Uh, it's highly polluting, but it has created a, 
or is creating somewhat of a surplus in natural gas in the United States. Um, because there are no pipelines between here and the Caribbean, this gas will be would have to be liquefied for export. And uh, that means it's it's cooled to very cold temperatures, put on a ship, much like oil, and then shipped over and regasified wherever it's consumed. Uh, the gas industry in the United States is very excited about this because they are hoping to make lots of money by exporting liquefied natural gas. And uh, they're looking at places like the Caribbean because the closer your market is, the more money you can make. Um, the idea being that uh, they are doing something good for the Caribbean by helping them switch over their fuel oil infrastructure to natural gas. Uh, that's that's the basic contour of, of what LNG is. So it's fracking in the United States and exporting that LNG to the Caribbean and elsewhere. Right. So you mentioned in the article that um, fracked natural gas has been sort of rhetorically positioned as this um, viable uh, stepping stone to renewable energy sources, but that in fact, uh, experts on energy and, and on the subject have, have pointed out that it really just isn't. Um, so this is kind of part of the promotion of, of like, we're helping the Caribbean by helping them, you know, transition into renewable energy, but, but frack, fracked natural gas really isn't a viable transition. Right. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One is because uh, while it's it's said to be cleaner than coal and certainly cleaner burning than, than heavy fuel oil, uh, the process of extracting and transporting gas through pipelines uh, generates a lot of leakage of methane, which is also a greenhouse gas. And uh, when we burn natural gas, it also emits uh, CO2 emissions. So it's also a, a contributing to global warming. So environmentally speaking, uh, uh, it, 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 some research has actually suggested it might be worse than coal if you look at the entire chain of production. The, the second problem is, is that when you build energy production infrastructure, whether for oil, coal or gas, you invest a lot of capital and a lot of machinery into something that is expected to last for 20, 30 or 40 years. So this notion that natural gas is a bridge to renewables, it's kind of, I tell my students, it's a red herring because it's a very, 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 very long bridge. And uh, we don't really have time for that if we take seriously the, the situation of, of carbon emissions right now. Um, and because you have to build out infrastructure like these LNG ships, these LNG export uh, ports, regasification uh, facilities in, in the in the consuming place. Uh, you have a lot of capital invested in that, that, that is uh, invested also in not transitioning to renewable because the return on capital comes from burning fossil fuels. So it's not, uh, uh, we're not doing any favors for the climate or for the Caribbean by locking them into to this product. Mm -hmm. Right. And you mentioned that the, the kind of logistics of a uh, material good like natural gas is such that there's an industry around providing the commodity, but then there's also a whole industry around the process of liquefying and then regasifying um, in your article. There's also uh, this economic component um, that you're pointing out. So the, the environmental argument for promoting LNG in the Caribbean is, as we've established, uh, a little sketchy at best. Um, but you're also mentioning like this, uh, this capital, this uh, 
economic dynamic that's uh, a little bit more central to the story that you're telling in the article. So there's this notion that uh, defending these or, or promoting these systems of fossil fuel dependency in the Caribbean is, is a question of U.S. national security. Um, and this story that you opened the article with about the invasion of Grenada um, positions that history in the 1980s under the Reagan administration. Um, but it's also, you know, the Obama administration has was treating um, the promotion of LNG as a kind of national security issue. And so what you see is the militarization of um like the defense of this this industry in the Caribbean. So, you know, the US basically invades Grenada ostensibly to defend these medical students, but really to install a government that will be friendlier to US energy capital. Um so perhaps you could you can tell us a little bit more about, you know, how these economic interests have become the, the like promotion of these economic interests has become militarized. Um, and in the article, you specifically talk about how Venezuela and Cuba have um, in the past have kind of aligned themselves um, as an alternative to U.S. Uh, fossil fuel um, options for the Caribbean. Right. So, um, well, it's kind of a lot there. So let's break it down uh, piece by piece. So you know, anyone who's familiar with Latin America of a certain age uh, will uh, remember the Reagan years as kind of the pinnacle of of uh, interventionism in Central America and the Caribbean, uh, El Salvador, Guatemala, Nicaragua, and the Grenada invasion was uh, a moment in which Reagan was basically trying out uh, uh, our military. You know, after the sort of hiatus. Uh, you know, sort of all these attempts to try to recover military prowess in the wake of the Vietnam War. And specifically in that moment, the fact that we had just lost some 300 Marines in Beirut. And so it was you know, wrapped up in this militaristic hubris that Reagan had of wanting to have some victory somewhere. And it was certainly to defend American capital interests, not just energy capital, but other types of investments. He even said, you know, the opening quote of the piece is a reference to nutmeg. So nutmeg was Grenada's historical export. But, you know, throughout the Caribbean, all, lots of sorts of minerals and so forth uh, tied to U.S. capital interests. Um, and as you say, he invoked national security because uh, the invasion was couched as a response to the Cuban and Soviet threat. So that, that should be familiar to most who are familiar with Latin America, um, suggesting that somehow this tiny little island, as he called it, was a threat to national security. But um, fast forward a uh, couple of decades to uh, the Obama uh, administration and the question of natural gas, separating a moment from the Caribbean, but take the question of natural gas in the Obama administration. Specifically, the technique of fracking that came up for debate uh, when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State uh, came up for debate because our Department of State was actively promoting fracking around the world. And this was in part due to pressure from the industry on the administration to support this new business opportunity because we have the technology for fracking. Other places don't, but they do have gas that is locked in this uh, so-called tight shale and sandstone. So we're looking for a business opportunity. But there was a, a, a geopolitical calculation as well, uh, the idea being 
the more uh, gas we can, quote, quote, unleash, as Trump would say, uh, uh, by fracking and put onto the market, uh, the more possibility we have of countering uh, uh, Russian domination of natural gas, especially in Europe. And fracking was not only about, quote, quote, unleashing gas, it was also about unleashing oil. So the fossil fuel interests that are embedded in our political system were there throughout the Obama administration. He made some small steps in clean power questions, but uh, we have a very entrenched fossil fuel apparatus inside the American government, and it's become very visible now in Trump times. So uh, because of that geopolitical calculation, uh, the question of gas and specifically LNG, the possibility that we could export LNG and offer alternative supplies to places like uh, Europe or even more close at home, the Caribbean, uh, was talked about um, by figures in the Obama administration as uh, a national security interest. So LNG became a foreign policy tool, an, an instrument for exerting influence in terms of uh, what was couched as national security. I find that almost as much as a stretch as Reagan saying that, you know, Grenada was a national security threat. It, it's not clear to me that uh, fracking more gas and selling more gas uh, does something to, to favor our national security. But that, that's that's the logic. Right. So, I mean, what you have is a, is a series of, of lobbies of industries that are lobbying the government so strongly that the safety of our nation, whatever that means, which we could spend an hour talking about becomes conflated with really the safety of their profit margin. Sure. And that's, that's uh, the dynamic I'm kind of getting here. Definitely. And not just the industry, the, the Atlantic Council, big think tanks. Uh, there's a lot of revolving doors between mm -hmm. the gas industry, think tanks, and the administration. I talk about those in the article. Yeah, so I just want to, I want to um, quote from your article, uh, these terms that uh, kind of conflate those two impulses for national security and for uh, protecting capital interests. So, uh, you know, energy integration and energy cooperation and energy security. These terms can be read to mean hemispheric domination of U.S. militarism and private oil company interests. And what you're identifying is this kind of, uh, it's oil companies and now it's also natural gas companies and the sort of uh, constellation of industries around uh, transforming natural gas into a commodity and, and transporting it. Right. Um, all of those terms are aimed at countering nationalist projects like we see in Venezuela. Mm -hmm. so, right. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. So that brings us back to the, the current moment and the, the, the role that gas was is being construed as playing against Venezuela. So in the in the context of the high oil prices that I talked about and high oil dependence in the Caribbean, uh, Venezuela, um, when Chavez was still alive, uh, moved to create Petrocaribe, which was an in initiative aimed at supplying uh, subsidized gas in the form of credit, uh, excuse me, subsidized oil in the form of credit to Caribbean and Central American nations. Um, this was a boon, an economic boon to these Caribbean countries who were strapped because of the high price of oil. And here comes Chavez and says, 
we're going to, 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 to basically give you oil at sort of a long-term loan situation at low interest rates. So it wasn't really giving it away, but was certainly providing it at a lower cost than those countries could get on the market from, say, the United States and big, big oil in the United States. And you what also said they had a they had an option to barter, like they there were better export options um, right. in exchange for oil too. So you had shipments of black beans coming from I think Nicaragua and and, and shipments of oil right. going exchange. So the the and many of these countries were under pressure from the United States not to sign up for Petrocaribe because uh, oil was an instrument of diplomatic pressure. If you could free yourself from the U.S. market and tie yourself to Venezuela, you've you've given yourself some more policy freedom. And that's clear to any observer that it made good economic and political sense for these countries, whether they were right or left. And most of them weren't left. Mm -hmm. uh, it made good sense for them to sign up for Petrocaribe um, while the prices of oil were high. So. In the waning years of the Obama administration, this gave a new impetus to the LNG thrust uh, with the argument that if we can get LNG on the market and get LNG exported and get LNG infrastructures in the Caribbean, we can counter the Venezuelan. We can counter the Venezuelans, basically. And so, again, you see how LNG is, is configured as an instrument of of uh, a foreign policy instrument, in this case, to try to weaken Petrocaribe. It, it didn't happen as they hoped, and I cite some documents in the article that folks can look at if they want to, but uh, ultimately the, the fact that we were fracking and increasing oil production helped, and the Saudis were also keeping production up to try to put our frackers out of business, meant that oil prices came down. Oil prices coming down led to the current problems we see in Venezuela, mm -hmm. and I think have kind of taken the steam out of this notion that LNG is 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 the main weapon against Venezuela. Um, nonetheless, I just saw in recent weeks um, articles that are touting now uh, to continue the push to export LNG to the Caribbean um, because I, I don't know how much how many details we want to get into, but the fracking industry in the United States is also deeply indebted. And if we can't find markets for LNG, the whole fracking apparatus will will sort of won't survive. So uh, as I said at the beginning, one of the closest markets and now with these hurricanes and, and, and positions of infrastructural weakness and, and dependency, um, you're seeing lots of efforts to push LNG onto the Caribbean countries. Right. So that kind of brings us to the present moment and the, the devastation of, of these hurricanes in the Caribbean. Um, you know, and some environmentalist uh, voices have, have pointed out, like it's a moment of rupture that maybe presents an, uh, an opportunity for um, building up renewable energy structures. And as you say in the article, the Caribbean is a region that's kind of uniquely um, positioned for renewable energy transitions. There's a lot of options for wind and solar. They get a lot of sun, they get a lot of wind. Um, but instead, what we're kind of seeing is 
uh, particularly in Puerto Rico, you know, it's looking pretty, it's looking probable that uh, the entire energy, like the Puerto Rican state's energy um, company is going to be privatized, um, as opposed to, uh, you know, ideally the Nuclista dream of a, of a socially, uh, socially open um, state run renewable energy system. Um, and that kind That's... of seems to be the the trend around the region. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds really nice. Um, yeah, the, um, to nobody's uh, real surprise, uh, you know, no disaster goes uh, without somebody taking opportunity. And it seems like uh, Rosselio, the governor of Puerto Rico, who has already sort of been very close to neoliberal, you know, free market uh, uh, interests, is moving to privatize the uh, the uh, government owned uh, electric utility that doesn't necessarily foreclose the possibility of renewables but it suggests right. that uh, it doesn't really give much hope for uh, renewables and there are a couple of reasons for that both in Puerto Rico and elsewhere in the Caribbean um, is that these infrastructures again are so tied up with the interests of finance capital that if you leave it up to the private sector, private sector capital is going to go to fossil fuels because of the reasons I stated earlier. You, you force consumers to invest in the cost of physical infrastructure, which you can financialize and make money off of over a long term because you lock in dependence. Right. You also force customers to lock into paying for a commodity energy source, which is oil or natural gas, or in the case of the United States, coal. And that can be financialized as well. So from a, a capitalist perspective, fossil fuels are the way to go. Uh, they're also mobile, so you can move them one place to another. As a scholar, Andreas Malm has a beautiful recent book called Fossil Capital, which talks about the reasons that uh, capitalism prefers fossil fuels because you can move them from one place to another. Uh, you can buy, you can speculate on them in the market without even taking physical property over them. Uh, they're commodities and the sun and the wind are not so easily subjected to that form. So if we leave it up to the private sector, we're not going to see this wonderful scenario that you suggested we would like to see. Uh, we need government investment. We need people mobilized to demand and resist, first of all, resist fossil fuel infrastructures and demand government investment in alternative energy infrastructure. And we need people on the United States side to keep resisting fossil fuel infrastructure build out. And this is a connection between the Caribbean and places like Pennsylvania and Texas uh, and Oklahoma where the fracking is happening in the Dakotas, where we saw the DAPL struggle against that pipeline, which is also moving fracked oil. Right. And we have a struggle in Florida against an LNG export terminal. Um, all of those are very much tied up in this. So these aren't separate issues uh, just for the Caribbean. This We're connected by these infrastructures and these capital interests. And you have to resist them at every point. We can't sit back here and just hope that Puerto Ricans and, and we'll be in New York City in a couple of weeks talking with uh, some of the uh, Puerto Rican activists. Uh, um, so um, 
we should certainly support and have solidarity with those movements, but we also need to act here to resist fossil fuel infrastructure build out. Yeah, I mean, I think one of my one of my favorite parts of your article is that you point out, um, you know, various moments in history where NACLA as an institution and as, you know, a periodical has uh, called out the hypocrisy of of these narratives that that suggest that, you know, this is a national security question. This is a question about um, fighting the spread of communism and also, you know, the notion that this is a transition to renewable energy. Um, but you're also making a really excellent point that. Um, you know, this isn't something that only affects uh, Puerto Ricans, people in the Caribbean. It's also not something that only affects uh, the Lakota Sioux in the in the Dakotas. It's something that affects um, pretty much all of us. Uh, and, you know, in the, in the longer term or not even not so long term at this point, um, it's something that's going to affect our environments and our, our climate um, and is is doing so now. So it's really crucial that we um, we stand up and get involved uh, and recognize the ways in which, you know, not just for altruistic purposes, but but for our own safety and the and the future of, of our of our own communities. Um, we have to resist this uh, before we wrap up. Um, maybe you can share some other ideas for how people can get involved. Um, and also, I'm just curious, you know, what, what you'll be paying attention to. Um, and maybe you can also tell our listeners, you know, where they can find you on the web or, or elsewhere. Um, right. So as far as getting involved, as I say, um, and this going back to, to, to NACLA, I mean, the great thing about NACLA is that there's a long history of of uh, critical reporting and writing on Latin America. So um, that's a tradition that we're, we're, we're trying to keep going here. And these are just new dynamics, but you see old patterns as well. And so that's one of the things about this Caribbean case that I was trying to, to point out. Um, and as I say, as far as getting involved here at home, um, you know, we saw the, the rise of fracking during the Obama administration and and so on. So we, we're not going to really give uh, Barack a pass on this. But to his credit, he made some small moves. Uh, he made some small moves to uh, slowly steer this giant monster in a new direction. The clean power plan uh, sort of wind, stepping back from our relationship with Saudi Arabia. And I, I could go on not saying. It was great, but there were small moves. Uh, with Trump, we've, we've taken 10 steps in, in the wrong direction. Um, we see the, the, the fossil fuel industry has captured almost every aspect of the Trump administration. Uh, we see that we have re renewed and, and restored and, and, and sort of re-embraced Saudi Arabia uh, by uh, attacking the, the Iran agreement and moving back closer to Saudi Arabia, which is deep in a war in Yemen, I don't want to go too far afield, but these things are all connected through fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. So we need to be very critical and, and about the linkages between you know, our daily lives and the, these bigger questions. So, of course, anything you can do to reduce your dependence on fossil fuels is, is, is wonderful. But anything we can do collectively, as I say, to get involved in, in, in resisting uh, the expansion and build out of new fossil fuel infrastructure. Uh, that's the battleground. You'll read in the issue too, this great, uh, great piece, uh, we did with, uh, Brian Parras from Houston, uh, about, uh, environmental racism and, and the petrochemical industry in Houston 
I mean, it's, it's basically slow violence and slowly killing people. It was just a piece uh, the other day uh, about Cancer Alley in, in Louisiana, in the lower part of the Mississippi River, which um, uh, petrochemical plants are, are killing people. And so you don't have to look very far afield to see the impacts of the situation we're in. And, and uh, I'm certainly not professing to be the, the source to go to, but if you want to follow some of my ideas on, on Twitter, I, I have uh, a a Twitter account under my own name, Brett Gustafson. That's mostly about Latin America. I have one for a course I teach called uh, Energy Underscore Politics, where I rant and rave about these issues frequently. This is this is something that hasn't been super central to our conversation today, but it is worth noting that the immediate uh, adverse health effects of of these situations do disproportionately affect people of color and Black people in the United States. Um, and as such, there are really fantastic organizations like Black Lives Matter, but also uh, environmentally focused organizations run by people of color and Black Americans. So we will definitely include links to some organizations that you can support financially um, if you feel so inclined. And of course, you can always donate to NACLA uh, and follow us on Twitter. Um, so yeah, Brett, thank you so much for, uh, for talking with me today. Thank you, Helen. Pero yo digo que no, pero yo digo que no, que es más rica la gallina, dice que... That was Brett Gustafson, professor of anthropology at Washington University. Brett's article is available to read online at nakla.org, where you can also listen to other episodes of Nakla Radio, read more of our original content, as well as subscribe to the Nakla Report and donate to Nakla. You can also find us on the web at facebook.com nakla and on Twitter at nakla. And if you're listening to Nakla Radio on iTunes, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It helps us reach more listeners. Nakla Radio is produced by me. Our editor is Laura Weiss, and our music is by Radio Horocho. Oh, oh.